Amen. Thank you so much, Mike, and thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Blake Godsey. I serve as the kids pastor here. I'm happy to be here with you this morning as we continue in our Ephesians series. I did want to just go ahead and let you know we do have a uh, baptism coming up at the end of this service, so that's something for us to all be looking forward to today. Uh, and we are going to be back in Ephesians 3 today. Um, I actually, when I was in seminary, I took a whole class on Ephesians, and there's times when sometimes I wish I'd taken a few more notes. Uh, would have been helpful for today, right? But uh, something else I did while I was in seminary is I worked at a coffee shop. Um, so at this coffee shop, there are many unenviable tasks at a coffee shop, but one of the ones I looked forward to least was changing out the toilet paper in the dispenser. Now, anytime you got to go and be a part of cleaning a public restroom, nobody's looking forward to that, right? But there was something with this toilet dispenser, this toilet paper dispenser, that, oh my goodness, you had to just wrench the, the empty roll out, and you had to really force the new one in. So I'd go in there, and I'd be like, okay, it's time to go to work, and I'd be trying to get it just right in the groove, sometimes bending the groove so it would come out. And it would sometimes take like five or ten minutes. I'd come out, I'd be covered in sweat. They'd be like, what were you doing? I was like, I was changing the toilet paper. Of course I'm covered in sweat. It's really difficult. And they were like, okay, that's cool. So one day I got this task to replace the toilet paper again. I said, all right, got to bring my fan in, get ready, have an ice pack ready for after it's over. And something was different this time. I recognized on the outside of that dispenser, there was this little like quarter-sized little spot, and it had this little slit right in the middle of it that looked perfect for a key and I pulled out the lanyard that they always gave me and noticed that there was a key of a very similar size on that lanyard that they had given me and I said oh. try it out sure enough the little dispenser pops open remove remove add 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 it back just like that take 20 seconds I did that for months months long I was going in and I was wrenching the old toilet paper roll out and then jamming the new one back in there. I had no idea how everybody else did it so quickly. And I don't know that before the 9.30 service today that I'd ever admitted out loud that that is what had happened because I was way too embarrassed to tell anybody that I'd gone that long without knowing that. And so sometimes in our faith walk, sometimes in the Christian life, we can be tempted to force it and wrench it and feel like I've got to get it just right. I've got to do it, just turn my head this way, hold my tongue right in order to make it through the Christian life. But what we know is that doesn't work. We know that there is a way that it's supposed to be done, and ultimately that only comes through the work of God in our lives. So last week, uh, we talked about this reconciliation between the Jews and Gentiles. We talked about this great mystery that we have been talking about in the book of Ephesians, that the Gentiles and Jews are being brought together through Christ into one body. And this week, what we're going to see is a prayer. We're going to see that Paul is praying for these believers in Ephesus, that they would be united, that they would be able to display God's character, that they would be able to fully understand the love of Christ and recognizing that God is the one who ultimately supplies that strength for us. So we are going to be in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14 today. And let's take a look just at the beginning part of this prayer. 
It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So anytime we see something in Scripture, or if maybe you took some sort of literature class, or you've done any sort of study, anytime you see a phrase like, for this reason, or because, or since, or therefore, maybe you've heard somebody say, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? We've got to take special attention. We say, okay, whoever's writing this, and it's the same with Scripture, they're, they're wanting us to remember something that they've already written. They want us to have something in mind as they move into this next section. So understanding these things is really important as we try to discern what the Holy Spirit is telling us through these biblical authors. So Paul had actually, in the passage from last week, he actually started with that same little phrase in verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So, okay, so we're, we're back there. He started with this same kind of for this reason calling us back. So it's always helpful. Okay, what did he write? just before that. And so we get a nice little uh, summary at the end of chapter 2 of what he's probably talking about, what he's probably referencing, starting in verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when he first uses this phrase, we see he's referencing again this unity that's coming between the Jews and Gentiles in Christ. He's referencing how they are being built together into one family, into one body, the church. But in verse 2 of chapter 3, it's almost like Paul kind of goes off on this, like, logical digression. You may, if you're looking in the ESV, you may see there's a dash there after verse 1. The uh, translators think, you know, he's actually kind of going on a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Okay, but again, we know that ultimately Paul is not the author, right? Ultimately, the author is God. Paul is being led by the Holy Spirit to write these things, and what he writes ends up being one of the most important parts of the book. We get a little bit of a sample here in verse 6 where he clarifies for us what it is, this mystery that he's been talking about. In verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what you might consider a logical digression that he goes through like verses 2 through 13 actually ends up being kind of the crucial point of the book of Ephesians. It ends up being this part where the a lot of the book turns on this revelation of the mystery of the gospel like we saw in verse 6 that Jews and Gentiles are co-heirs. So when you take the for this reason from verse 1 and it's referencing that unity between Jews and Gentiles then he kind of goes on this maybe what we consider a logical digression that led by the Spirit to where he more fully fleshes out that unity. And now when we get to verse 14, we've got this depth and richness. Okay, we know what he's talking about. We know why he is praying for these believers. He has got in mind, and we as the readers are to have in mind, that he's talking about this unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
And I think for us in the 21st century, it can be really easy for us to take that for granted, take for granted this unity that was coming together through Christ in the first century. Because many of us are Gentiles. Not many of us probably would, would call ourselves whether ethnically or religiously Jews, right? So we take for granted the church is always, our church is mostly Gentiles. But we have to remember it's not how it was back in the first century. Instead, there was this incredible animosity between Jews and Gentiles, culturally, linguistically, politically, and of course, religiously. You've got this group of people who had been immersed in polytheism in different forms, and then this group who had been the chosen people of God, trying to combine into one body in the church, to be united in Christ. Not as easy as it seems. So Paul recognizes that it's only through God's power that this unity, that this new creation, this mystery can unfold is only through the power of God. It's only through what he's going to be able to do. So it's the desire for unity that, of the Jews and Gentiles that has led him to pray. And we see two important aspects in this prayer about prayer here just in verse 14. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. We see two things here even in this short little quip. We see this little bit about access and we also see Paul taking a posture of submission. So just earlier in chapter 3, Paul has exhorted the Ephesians by telling them, through Christ we have access to the Father. We can approach the Father in prayer because of what Jesus has done. He has brought reconciliation between us and God. So we have that access. But also, there's a posture and there's an understanding of God's position and power. We have access, but he is still God. We are still human. So the Father's position as the eternal God leads us to be submitted to him in prayer. In fact, what Paul is going to say about the Father in this is from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So that's the ascription that he's going to go give to the Father here to help us understand him a little bit. I think what he's communicating here is a couple of God's characteristics. One, that he's creator, that there is no family in heaven or on earth that existed apart from his creation, that he is the ultimate author of life, and that he has authority. There's no one farther in the genealogy, higher up in the genealogy, that you could say, well, this person has authority over the Father. Instead, he's eternal. He has this authority. He is the creator. For that reason, it leads us to be submitted to him in prayer, even as we have freedom of access in the grace of Christ. And this submission in prayer is also a recognition that God alone is the one who has the power to do these things. We recognize that as he gives the Father his due glory, that it's also a recognition. He's the only one who's actually going to be able to make it happen. He has the key to the toilet paper dispenser, so to speak, right? He's the one who's got the key. And this is the content of what Paul is praying for them, starting in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So at the core of it, Paul is praying that God will strengthen the Ephesians spiritually. He wants them to be strengthened spiritually. And he prays this according to 
the riches of the Father's glory. Because of his revealed character, we can be certain that he's the one who is able. And this spiritual strengthening is a reflection of his character and a revelation of his glory. For us to be spiritually strengthened shows who God is. For us to be able to be strengthened spiritually, to live out what God's calling us to, it brings God glory because only he can do it. And in fact, we even know from the grammar that this is not something that is being ascribed to us, that we are not to become strong, but rather it says that we are going to be strengthened. So this is the use of the passive voice. Have you ever been in Microsoft Word and you get those real wonderful blue lines under what you're writing? And Word always seems to have a suggestion to make your writing better, doesn't it? Use more concise language. You don't need a comma there. What are you doing? One of the things it'll tell you sometimes is maybe try using the active voice instead of the passive voice. So the passive voice, the ball was thrown by the boy, okay? Or the active voice, the boy threw the ball. Usually Word's going to tell you well, let's do the passive or the active voice. It's a little more clear. But um, luckily for us, the Spirit did not make a grammatical mistake, but rather is helping us understand something deeply true and theological. For us to be strengthened is in recognition that it's only through God's intervention, it's only through His power that we are to receive any sort of strength. We aren't told to become strong. He is praying that we will be strengthened that God will intervene. He's the one who can do it. And this strengthening comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. In our inner being is what it says here. A lot of times in scripture we see it listed as the heart. Even nowadays we will often refer to that kind of core seat of who we are as a person as our heart. Something that's happening in the very deepest part of who we are, not something superficial. He's praying that the Father will strengthen us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit for believers is that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that he leads us into truth, reminds us of what we're supposed to be doing, gives us the power to be able to do it. Without the Holy Spirit, we aren't able to fully understand truth, to do what God is calling us to. It's only through that strengthening. And again, this isn't some sort of outward or superficial strength, the strength to do good deeds so I look really good, but it's something that's happening deep inside of ourselves. And then we see the result. The result is that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, this isn't referring to someone believing in Jesus for the first time. If you remember at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, I know it's been a little while, but this is a letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's a letter that's written to the believers in Ephesus, the Ephesian church, okay? So he's not telling them that he wants them to be strengthened so that they can believe in Jesus for the first time. So what does he mean? For us as people who already believe, for Christ to dwell in our hearts is to continually surrender our will to the influence of Christ in our lives. Even if we have believed in Jesus, we don't always live that way. We are positionally, we are positionally submitted to Christ, but we aren't always actually in our actions. We are not always submitting ourselves to Christ. And so that's what he's saying. I want them to be strengthened in the inner being so that this person of Christ can fully dwell, so that these people can fully live out who Christ is calling them to be. 
So that's the result of being strengthened by the Spirit, is that we continue in obedience to Christ, rooted in our faith in him. All of this comes through the faith that we have in Christ. We can't be rooted in Christ if we don't have first faith in him. And let's also not let the language of Trinity be lost on us in this section. So again, the Trinity is this doctrine that we believe the one true God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see here that Paul is praying to the Father, asking that the Spirit will strengthen believers so that Christ may more richly dwell in their hearts. We see this language of the Trinity, of the entirety of the Godhead. And this is an important reminder to all of us that the entirety of the Godhead is at work in our salvation and in our continued growth and sanctification. All of the Godhead is involved in everything we do and how we grow in our faith. And not only that, but remember, we're talking about the unity between the Jews and Gentiles, that they are coming together into one body, the church. And the Trinity is our symbol for unity. It is our example for unity. Three persons, one God eternally existing in perfect unity and community. That is our model as believers. A model we will never attain, but it is our example of what unity and community are meant to look like. We look to the Trinity. And as Paul continues his prayer, he's going to ask God to strengthen them in another specific way. The second half of verse 17 starts this way. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, the prayer for believers is that God would grant the strength, and that in this instance, the strength would be to understand Christ's love, that believers would be granted the ability to more fully understand the love of Christ. And we see, too, that this strength to understand isn't meant to be lived out in isolation. Instead, it's together with all the saints that Paul is praying that we will be strengthened to know this love. Because of the work of Jesus on our behalf through our faith in him, all believers are called saints in Scripture. So when we see all the saints, that's anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus. Okay, sometimes we think of it as a person with a lot of good actions. We, say, we might say, oh, that person's a saint. Or certain denominations maybe would ascribe people who reach a certain level this, uh, this sainthood. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that anyone who has believed in Jesus is considered a saint, not because of our good outward actions, not because we have reached a certain status, but because of who Jesus is. Because of who Jesus is, we can be considered saints because of who he is. So this prayer is that we individually, corporately as a local body, and then corporately as a body of all believers at all times, that all of us together all the saints, that we would understand the love of Christ. So let's continue to keep in mind, again, this is about, he's got in his mind this unity of Jews and Gentiles. It's not just an individual thing. It's not just for, uh, for us here at Solid Rock. This is together with all the saints. And we also see here this 
incredibly emphatic way that Paul describes this love. I want to read again, uh, verse, starting in verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. This emphasis is not to get us to bring out our tape measure, right? We're not going to try to get it down to the nearest half inch, okay? We're not expected to be able to actually measure this, but rather this emphasis about how vast the love of Christ is for us. And we see other emphatic speech like this when describing the love of Christ. Actually, we see it in the epistle to the Romans, also written by Paul at the end of chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. It says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In both of these emphatic passages, we see something important about Christ's love. In this Romans passage, we see how secure we are in it. We see that we are secure. There's nothing that can separate us. He's using this emphatic language. In this passage today, in Ephesians, we're seeing an emphasis on how vast it is, how incredibly large this love is. And we also see something that's interesting, a little bit of a paradox here, because he's praying that the Spirit will strengthen believers to know the love of Christ, but then he tells us that it's unknowable. He said to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, right? So he's like, I'm praying that they will be able to, they'll have the strength to comprehend and to know this love, which by the way surpasses knowledge, right? Sounds like a little bit of a paradox. I think about it like this. The vastness of our universe, we can't know every inch of our universe, right? I'm sure some astronomer would slap me for even using inches to try to describe the vastness of the universe, right? We can't know every part of the universe, but astronomers and scientists, they work and they realize we can know more. We may not be able to know it all, but we can know more. And I think that's what we're called to here. As finite beings, we cannot fully understand the love of an infinite God. Christ's love is too vast for us to fully understand, but here's the thing, we can know more of it. We can know it more. We can let it affect us more. We see this in Scripture, that we can know it more. In the life of Jesus, we're able to know his love more. Through the experience of God, through the Holy Spirit, we're able to understand his love more. And even though it's not fully knowable, God's praying, or Paul is praying to God, please, Give them the strength to understand it more. Please help them understand. So what's the purpose of understanding this love more? Verse 19 says that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. The purpose of knowing this love is that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does this mean? It means the more we understand the love we have in Christ, the more we will grow to reflect God's character. The more we understand the love we have in Christ, the more we will reflect his character. The prayer hasn't been that the Ephesians will do more good works, that they would tithe more, that they would pray more, they'd read their Bible more, that they'd host more, they'd evangelize more. 
Paul's praying that they would be strengthened spiritually and that they, we would understand the love of Christ more so we can be filled with the fullness of God provided in Christ. In this first half of Ephesians, a lot of what we've been talking about is our status and identity. Not a status or identity that anyone in the world could give us, but our status and identity in Christ. Our status and our identity in Christ, that is what our actions are rooted in. It's only because of that identity, if we are in Christ, that we belong to him, that we are called to good works. But sometimes we struggle to put the cart before the horse, so to speak. We think, I bet if I do a lot of really good things, then I could make sure that God loves me, that we're all good. Or I, I know that I have salvation in Christ, but I bet if I do a bunch of good things, he'll really, he'll really stick with me. I can be really secure if I can just do a lot of good things. And how often do we, when we're in a dry season spiritually, I know this is true for me, uh, maybe it's true for you. How often when we're in a dry season spiritually do we think, what more do I need to be doing? What do I need to be doing differently to get myself out of this dry season? Do we ever look at a season of spiritual dryness and ask, am I understanding the love of Christ? Have I forgotten my identity? Do I need a reminder of who God says I am? God's design is that our actions are rooted in our identity. Our actions do not define our identity if we are in Christ. We can't work our way out of it. We don't have the strength to do it. It's only the strength that God provides. And Paul finishes this passage by giving praise to God who makes this possible. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In this unity in the body of Christ, in this spiritual strengthening, in the exhibition of God's character, in the understanding of his love, God is brought glory. He's brought glory. He receives the glory because none of this is possible without him. Listen to this again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's the nature of our God. That's the character of our God. God's plan for the unity in the church between Jews and Gentiles, for the unity that we still seek today, that plan was far greater than anything we could have come up with. It's far greater than anything that any person could have dreamt up. This glorious thing he's come up with in the church, the way it was accomplished through Jesus, is incredible. Far more than we would be able to ask or think. In church, I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you think he's finished? Do you think the God that was able to do this, do you think he's finished with you? Do you think that the God who called Abraham out of a life of paganism and made him into a great nation, do you think the God who used Joseph's slavery and false imprisonment to take care of his people, do you think the God that used Moses, a killer who said, 
I can't even speak to lead his people out of Egypt? Do you think that God is finished with you? Do you think that the God of Joshua, of Rahab, of Deborah, of Gideon, of Samson, of Ruth, of Samuel, David, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah, Mary, Peter, Paul, do you think he's done with you? The God who came to earth to live as a man, to heal the blind and sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead, to willingly die on a cross and resurrect from the dead, to conquer sin and death, do you think he's finished with you, church? He's not finished. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with me. He is at work. He's been who he has been since eternity past. He will be who he is in eternity future. He is not finished. He's still at work. It's only through him. There's nothing that we can do to achieve this strength only he can provide. Throughout this passage, we see that Paul uses this passive tense. It's happening to us. It's because of who God is. He's the actor. We are not able to do this. And in the end, he is the one who gets the glory. We aren't the ones who have to carry the burden, carry the mantle, the mantle we could never carry to live a perfect life. He is the one who gets the glory. He's the only one who is worthy of that kind of praise. He's the one who's worth it. He gets the glory. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't found this identity in Christ, if you don't know what it means to be a part of Christ, if you haven't believed that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he was God, that he willingly died on a cross for our sins and he rose from the dead, that he died so that we could be reconciled to God, that through faith in him, our sins would be forgiven, that we'd forever be a part of his family. If you haven't believed that this morning, we would love, we would love to talk to you. We're going to have prayer partners down here at the front. There will be elders in the commons. We would love to talk to you about what it means to be a part of the family of God, to have your identity rooted in Christ. Or maybe you're here today and you have that identity, but you're having trouble living it out. Maybe you feel like God's run out of patience for you. Maybe you feel like he's finished. He's finished with you. He's not finished with you. And as we close today, I'd just like to ask a few questions so that we can reflect on what God has taught us through the scripture today. First, what situations lead you to fall before the Father in prayer? We touched briefly on prayer at the beginning. This prayer that Paul has given, it's this big thing between the Jews and the Gentiles, what leads you to fall before the Father in prayer? Do you believe he's the only one who's truly able? Second, what areas of your life are you hesitant to let God shape into Christ-likeness? And what would it look like for you to give that over to him? Third, how does profound love change us? How can a more full understanding of Christ's love change you today. And finally, are there times in your life that you think God is out of patience, that he's finished with you? I think we all have those times, church. I'm here to tell you this morning, he's not finished. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with me. He's still working. Let's pray. God, we are just so grateful that you aren't finished with us. We're so thankful that we have the opportunity to say that we are your children, that our identity is rooted in Christ. Lord, we recognize the blessing that it is, but 
God, we also recognize in our own hearts that it's hard for us to live in it. We feel so tempted, Lord, to live out of our own strength, to prove something to ourselves, to others, sometimes even to you, Lord. We confess that's how we live our lives. God, give us the strength spiritually through your spirit to let Christ dwell richly in us. Lord, help us understand your love more. It's like you say in the parable, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. We, wanna, we know we've been forgiven much. We want to love much. We want to understand the love you have for us. We want to more fully understand it. Ultimately, God, we want to give you the glory you're due. Help us to live lives that point to you, not to ourselves, firmly rooted in who you are. God, we ask that you continue the work that you're doing in us. We know that you're doing it. Pray that you give us a recognition. Don't let us give up on ourselves. Don't let us give up on you and what you're doing. We pray this all in the name of Jesus through whom this is made possible. Amen.